everyone. Would you uh, stand with me in reverence for reading the scripture? Uh, my name is Joshua DeYoung, for any of you who don't know me. Um, I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, our scripture reading this morning will actually be from three different passages. So um, the first one will be from Acts 7, 51 through 53. It says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now also betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels, but did not keep it. Uh, the second passage is from Ephesians 4, 25-32. says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And finally, from 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, well, um, it's really good to be with you all. This is our, uh, our final week in our 10-week series, The Spirit and his gifts um, to conclude. I want to note this. I've been talking about these things for nine weeks now. This is our tenth. And there's some beautiful promises and there are some beautiful opportunities um, that are laid before us that, that we can seize if we will and if we want to. Um, but what I, what I want to kind of leave us with this final week is the fact that we, we can't take the Spirit-filled life for granted. Um, though Jesus has earned these amazing gifts for us, and though all who are in Christ have been baptized with the Spirit, He's inside of us, we've received Him, He's not leaving, that's a promise, you can take it to the bank. It doesn't mean that we can't get in the Spirit's way. Um, we can hinder Him from doing all that He would like to do in our individual lives and, and together as a church community which is what each of those passages was getting at in part. Um, there, there's this kind of genre of film. I, I feel like different genres, there's, there's a handful of genres that like, feels like actors will gravitate to if they've been you know, a celebrated actor for a while and they haven't yet got, got their Oscar gold, you know? Like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna, it's time for me to do this or do that. And some of them are frankly a little bit offensive. Um, one of them, 
One of them, I feel like, is, is the marriage dissolving movie, you know? Like, and some of these are amazing. That, the, a, a movie about a marriage or, or a deep relationship falling apart, um, it kind of becomes Oscar bait for good reason because there's so much drama to be mined from a relationship, either a deep friendship or especially a marriage or a parent-child relationship, like dissolving and falling apart. Um, these films end up being really good a lot of the times because there's just so much there. One of, one of the ones, it's not, I don't remember if it's about a marriage specifically, but one of my all-time favorite films, it's one of those rare movies that when I saw, I think I saw it in 11th grade, I think that's when it came out, and it's still, it's still one of those movies. I think I watched it three or four years ago. It's still up there. It was my, probably a top fiver when I saw it, and now, 20 years later or something, it's still one of those. And that's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, if you ever saw that. It was a movie with Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet. And uh, anyway, I don't want to spoil it for you, but basically, if you haven't seen it, you should, you should see it. But basically, it's, it's a film where this couple's together for years. They have a healthy, beautiful relationship. And then, as, many think, as, as is the case many times, things start to dissolve and start to crumble and start to destabilize. And when you meet these characters, um, their relationship is over. And Jim Carrey's character finds out that, that, you know, his former partner, she's basically had this sci-fi procedure where she has her memories wiped of everything, their entire relationship. So she has this done, and now she has no memory of the, let's say, five years that they spent together. And he's, like, heartbroken by this, and he decides he's going to do the same thing. Oh, you forgot me, well, I'm going to forget you too. So he goes and has this procedure done, and then the bulk of the movie is going back through his primary memories with her in reverse order, uh, starting when things were the ugliest and the nastiest, but as he's going back and having them kind of deleted in real time, he starts to get back into the really good memories, the sweet ones. And over the course of, the, I guess I am going to spoil the whole movie for you, over the course, <laughs> my, my illustration depends on it, I suppose. But as, as he keeps going back further and further, he starts getting back into, oh yeah, this was sweet. Oh yeah, this was beautiful. Oh yeah, this was one of the great friendships and companionships of my life. And he decides he doesn't want, he doesn't want to lose the memories. He decides hanging on to that memory would be better than just forgetting that this had ever happened. And in this film, as is the case in so many, you, you know, what, you, what you have here is a relationship that ends up being presumed upon. A relationship that's presumed upon. You end up having a relationship where uh, over time, People just take one another for granted. You assume that, that through the force of habit and routine that just the health is going to remain, that it's not something that has to be fought for and worked for, and that there has to be continual repentance and confession, even to use Christian terminology, and, and repair and, and, and self-humbling and pursuit of the other. No matter how good a relationship starts, no matter how exciting it is in the beginning, there's always the potential for us to begin to presume upon it, presume that just because of the force of momentum, it will always be this way. These films powerfully can show us that is not the case. It's not the case in our human relationships. Our deepest relationships cannot be presumed upon. Thank God for things like covenant, but nonetheless, that the heart and the soul of it can't be presumed upon. And it's the same way for the spirit-filled life. Many of us, when we came to Christ initially, there was, there was a, a, a jolt of passion, a jolt of excitement. Whenever we've been saved, we, we have that clear recognition that we've moved from death into life. We've been lost, 
and now we've been found, that we're not just alone in sort of this meaninglessness void of a universe, but there is a God who is there, who turns out is actually good and actually loving and has actually sacrificed himself, his own son, the second person of the Trinity to bring you home. Anyone who has that, that the moment of conversion, and that's, that's all of us who are, who are believers, we've experienced that radical joy and excitement of, 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 oh, this is how this God is, and this is what he's done for me. And perhaps even in our connection to the Holy Spirit, we felt the love of God, as we talked about last week, being poured out in our hearts, and we're excited, and we're passionate. We can't wait to tell people we're so fired up about this thing. And then... A few years pass, decades pass, things are a little bit old hat, things are a little bit rote. Oh yeah, I, yeah, I've been walking with Jesus for a while, yeah, I've had the Holy Spirit for a while, and we begin again to presume upon that relationship. Fortunately for us, like any good covenant, God will never leave you. He will never leave you. No matter how cold, no matter how sour, we get with him over time. Praise God for that. But we can walk with him with a whole lot less victory and a whole lot less power and a whole lot less intimacy and a whole lot less experienced love that he really desires for us to have. So, that being the case, we are today going to look briefly at these three biblical passages that describe different ways that, that people can suppress the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, the this, this sermon could end up feeling like a, a kind of a bummer note in this series on, um, but, but I, I trust that, uh, that we'll, we'll circle back around by the end. The language that these passages use include three things. And this isn't, I don't think this is a comprehensive or systematic every, every way we might talk about resisting the Spirit. But nonetheless, these are three biblical phrases. First, resisting the Spirit. Second, grieving the Spirit. And third, quenching the Spirit. So let's, let's jump in and take a look at each of these. The first comes from Acts 7, 51 through 53. And this comes from Stephen. Stephen, who was one of the Greek enculturated Jews who was chosen to serve in the early church in Jerusalem. We're told he was full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power. He did great wonders and signs among the people in the name of Jesus. And we get this story where at the end of Acts 6, he's challenged by the religious leaders of Israel and then Acts 7 records this big speech he gave about how in rejecting Jesus, these religious leaders were acting like their forebears who also rejected the prophets of God. And he summarizes and concludes the speech with these words. This is all we'll read. It's a whole chapter long, this really long and, and amazing speech, but here's the end of it. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So a few aspects we see here of this resisting the spirit. What is he talking about? Well, he sees that these are... What he means by resisting the Spirit, A, is persecuting the prophets. And he has in mind the Old Testament prophets who were calling the people of Israel back to the covenant, back to the law, back to the scriptures, time and time again. He mentions that they, in that same breath, they, they were the ones who were killing the forebears of the Messiah. He mentions as well, betraying and killing the Messiah himself is an evidence of this. 
And then finally, not keeping the law. You received it as delivered by angels. You, 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 you claimed to recognize its authority, but you, you didn't keep it. So we could put what, what Stephen has in mind as resisting the Spirit as this. Rejecting and resisting the prophets, the scriptures, and Jesus is rejecting and resisting the Holy Spirit. That's what Stephen's claiming. And that makes sense. That makes sense. We, we should, that should not scandalize us at this point because the prophets, we've talked about, they prophesied by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures were inspired by the Spirit. Jesus shares in the Godhead and was empowered himself by the Spirit. On the flip side, this means listening to the prophets, listening to the scriptures, listening to Jesus is listening to the Holy Spirit. There's no bifurcation there. It is one way in which we listen to the Spirit. The Spirit is here to witness to Jesus, to glorify Jesus, to extend Jesus' rule through us. So instead of resisting the Spirit in these ways, let's just put it positively. We should seek and find the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures that are all about Jesus. Jesus says, all the Scriptures are about me. Do you recognize the immense privilege that comes with simply owning a Bible translated into your language? And we can nuance all of this and talk about how translations differ from the original languages and from one another and theories of inspiration and all of that has a place. But, but in a simple yet fully truthful way, we can declare that to read the pages of Scripture is to hear the voice of the Spirit. Again, we don't bifurcate being a spirit-led people and a scripture-led people. They always go together. They are not at odds. So that was quick, but there you go. Number one, don't resist the spirit. Instead, seek and find him in the scriptures and in Jesus. Second thing, the second thing he says is don't grieve the spirit. Don't grieve the spirit. This comes uh, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and I'll, I'll just read this again. He says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And here we go. In light of all this stuff, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So, so all this comes in, in this list of commands related to how the Christian communities ought, ought to relate to one another. And positively, he mentions, speak truthfully, deal properly with anger. Notice, we need to hear, Christians need to hear this. It's not don't ever be angry. There is a justified anger. But in that anger, do not sin. So he says, Deal properly with anger. Don't steal, but work and, and so you can be generous with other people. Use your words well. Practice forgiveness and kindness and so on. And then he lists some negative things. 
He says, avoid bitterness, avoid wrath, avoid improper anger, avoid slander, how you talk about one another, avoid malice. So what he's getting at here, what he's getting at here is that we grieve, we grieve the Spirit by indulging sin. Especially in what he's talking about here is sin against one another in the Christian community. If the Spirit indwells us, if he's made his permanent home within us, then it makes sense that he would be deeply affected by our sin. We are dragging the Spirit of God along on our misadventures. But why the word grief? Why the word grief? That's kind of an interesting one, huh? Grief is important. It's important, first of all, because only people grieve. And we've said it time and time again, but impersonal forces don't grieve. And so many of us, we still have this kind of hangover language or idea in our head about the Holy Spirit, that he's kind of the impersonal force related to God or something. But, But no, he is a person, just as much a person as the Father and the Son. You don't hear of gravity grieving. You don't hear of magnetism grieving. The Spirit is grieved over our sin because he's not like those things. He is a person. He's God. But, but more than that, why does he grieve? He, he grieves because he's the God who loves you, who, who loves you incomprehensibly deeply. And his commands are always for our deepest good, even when we don't understand why or how. His grief over your sin and over my sin is an expression of his love. It's like a parent who, you know, a parent who would never bother to discipline their kid, would never bother to correct them when they're doing dangerous things or foolish things or whatever. It's like, is that love expressed in any tangible way? If you say, ah, it's fine, do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. No, we we clearly go, okay, so (laughs) this is going to end in tragedy and disaster and heartbreak. That's not love expressed. He grieves, though, because he does love, and his commands, his definitions are based on your flourishing. We don't understand why always. I don't understand why half the time. Why this? But in my better moments, I'll say, but I trust you. I trust you. So most theologians take it that while all sin grieves God, Paul here has in mind more of this ongoing, lackadaisical, habitual, just contentment in sin that grieves the spirit to such a degree that his influence recedes. I think the idea here is is not just, we're all going to sin daily, but the healthy course of things is that we recognize it when we're made aware of it, we confess, we repent, we turn, we restore and repair that relationship, we come back to to the loving arms of the Father. But if if we don't do that, if we become content content with the distance, we we grieve him to such a degree that his influence begins to fall back. It's that kind of like, your your will be done. You could almost imagine God saying to us when when we're habitually grieving him in this way. So don't grieve the Spirit. Instead, instead, confess, repent, and yield to his filling. Pursue peace and love and obedience along with the rest of the Spirit's fruit. Learn to hate sin because you love God and you love your neighbor, and yes, you even love yourself. That's the alternative. Last one. He says, don't quench the Spirit. 
don't quench the spirit. This comes in another of Paul's letters, 1 Thessalonians. And as he's wrapping up his letter, he gives his readers in Thessalonica a bunch of summary commands, encouraging them to stay the course of faithfulness. But in that list of commands, he says this, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So, so what does it mean to quench something? The Koine Greek word, like our English word quench, is primarily an image related to fire. It, it, it's the image of extinguishing or putting out a fire, dumping a bucket of water on a flame. We use it to talk about thirst as well, almost like being thirsty as a fire. That's what it feels like, you know, deeply thirsty. Was last time, like on a hike or something, you didn't bring enough water. You're just deeply, deeply thirsty. It's what it feels like. It feels like a flame that needs to be quenched, that needs to be put out with water. That's the image. And when I think about this, actually a, a, a more specific image comes to me. Have you ever been camping in an extremely like, cold or wet setting? And not just camping, but like, you're, like the miserable kind. The miserable kind. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Um, I am not the person that you want on your team in a survival situation, okay? <laughs> I, I will be so much dead weight for you. Like if, if things really go down, you know, like an EMP blast takes out the, uh, the electri- electrical grid in the U.S. or something, like don't bother with me. Just leave <laughs> Come get my family, take care of them. I'll be, I will cause you nothing but harm. There are, some of you are outdoorsmen, outdoorswomen. I'm an indoorsman, okay? That's my, that's my domain. I hate being cold. I hate being wet, all of it. So maybe this thing hits me especially uh, close to home. But, but picture yourself, picture yourself when you're like camping with a few friends in the blistering cold. There's nothing and no one for miles. You can't see anything. It's dark. Maybe there's cloud coverage. You don't even have the light of the stars and the moon. Just super dark, super cold, super wet. Finally, you get a fire started. And maybe you're one of those people who's like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't bring matches. I don't bring in that stuff. I, I make a fire with, I don't even know what you would make it with, frankly. <laughs> Flint? Flint? That's, that's right, I think. Um, but you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rough it. I'm really going to do it. And you labor and you get this fire started. Get the fire started and you get the fire to start growing. You, you know, you'd start it with the kindling, but then it grows enough. You can put some sticks on it and maybe eventually you can throw some logs or whatever. And, but this takes a long time. You get the fire to, to the point enough where you can see your friends. Like you don't, you, you feel less alone. You can kind of see the immediate surrounding. You can tell, okay, good. There's not a bear right behind that tree or whatever. You can start maybe cooking some of the food that you brought, and you begin to, more than anything, feel that sweet warmth, that sweet warmth beginning to warm you. When, when things are desperate, fire is key to survival, and it's certainly key to comfort. But then just imagine that you've, like, all this has happened, and then someone, this would probably be me in this scenario, like trips and dumps their water all over the fire and puts it out. Or even worse, someone pours water on it on purpose. The horror of this, I think, catches something of the flavor of what Paul is getting at. We have this precious gift in the Holy Spirit that's, that's compared to a flame many times, not because he's not a person or whatever, but, you know, flame or a wind, but think, think that flame image, or even at Pentecost, the tongues of fire resting on their heads. Fire is a common image for the Spirit. 
And we have this gift of it, and it's, it's the key to all health and all faithfulness and all virtue and all power as a community. And it ought to be like protected and fanned into greater flame and built up and benefited from. That's the way things ought to be. But we can either by accident trip all over this thing and put it out, or even worse, say, I don't care. I'm just going gonna, gonna to construct my rules and my things that just pour the water on it. We can put it out. So this comes in a list of commands about mutual love and encouragement and service and forgiveness, a call to generally Christ-like communal life. And it's possible that, that quenching happens by living otherwise, again, by embracing sin. In that sense, it could overlap with what we've already said about grieving the Spirit. But what he, notice what he specifically says here. He, he, he follows it up with, with despising prophecies. I think that's the main idea here. It's, it's you know, and there can be good reasons why people might despise prophecy. We talked about some of those a few weeks ago. Sometimes things go off the rails. Sometimes it feels dangerous. Sometimes it feels like you've seen it exploited too many times and you just want to shut the door and say, no, I'm just not going there. We're not opening that. Maybe that's what the, Thess- the people in Thessalonica were like. We're, like we're, not, we're not messing with that stuff anymore. I've seen it get weird too many times. Maybe. Whatever the reason, whatever the reason, Paul says don't despise prophecies. Remember, he said, pursue these things. Desire these gifts. I think what Paul has in mind here with quenching the Spirit is rejecting these prophetic gifts outright. Or maybe we could say rejecting the the use of the gifts of the Spirit altogether outright. So, Paul says instead, embrace them with a discerning, testing posture. He's like, the, the answer, if you see these things exploited, abused, used in weird ways. Uh, there's all kinds of healthy, unhealthy expressions. He says, look, don't shut the door entirely. Just become discerning. Test. Grow. Learn how to critique and how to filter and how to reject the things that need to be rejected, but embrace the things that need to be embraced. Pursue obedience to the commands to discover and employ spiritual gifts, especially prophecy in the words of Paul, but do it with discernment. We cannot ignore that for some reason, God the Spirit chooses to work, to build up, to encourage through these prophetic gifts, whether we, <laughs> whether we like it or not. So instead of quenching them outright, saying, no, we're shutting the door, we're not doing that stuff, he says, embrace them with discernment. I think, I think this is a call to us to become serious about identifying spiritual gifts, developing them, stepping out into them with confidence, and creating space to use them both here when we gather on Sundays, but in community groups and in the day-to-day organic moments of life that no one planned. So there you go. Three passages, three don'ts, three do's. The Spirit of God wants a vital vital presence in this church. He wants a vital presence of this church. And we can resist him. We can grieve him. We can quench him. But instead, or instead, we can embrace him. So, to conclude, to conclude, 
we just have to acknowledge that we have been given so much in the Spirit. Like, if the, if the promises of God that we've been reading about for 10 weeks now are at all true, I'd say they are. We've been given so much. Because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, his followers, if you are his follower, that means you have received the Holy Spirit. He has made his home inside of you. And he wants to fill you repeatedly, ongoingly. He wants to give you more and more access to him relationally. He wants more and more influence and control over your life. He wants to bear fruit in your life and in mine. He wants to empower and gift us to be his hands and feet. As we said at the beginning, we have promises that we can never lose, friends, and that is good news, but we also have opportunities that we have to pursue. We have to pursue. We open this series by exclaiming or examining this incredible truth that Jesus told his disciples in the Gospel of John. Remember, Jesus said, look, it's to your advantage that I go away talking about his ascension to the Father, where he still is. We're waiting for him to come back, but he said, it's better for me to go away. It is better for me to go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come. That's the Spirit. But if I do go, I will send him to you. Jesus says that is better. What we have now with the Holy Spirit, all this stuff we've been talking about, in Jesus' opinion, is better than if he had remained on this earth and set up his kingdom and throne in the here and the now. I don't know why that is. (laughs) I don't know why that is, but I trust it because he said it. He said this is better. Now, I believe it will be even better when he does return in the fullness of time and set up his throne. That will be better than what we have now. But there's something about in his perfect plan, this time that we live in, that was better, that we have this, that we experience this, that we live this life that we have now. So we need to take that seriously. And yet, again, It is possible for us to leave much of what he wants to do, the spirit wants to do in and through us on the table, to not pick it up, to push it away, to grieve it, to quench it, to erect walls around it. We can leave it there. Similarly, it could also be that the spirit is at work in our midst and we just don't have the eyes to see it. Would we recognize the spirit-filled life if we even had it? Would we give God the praise that he's due for for actually doing these things in our midst? Would we celebrate him? Would we be encouraged by him? Would it scaffold our faith in our darker moments? So I want to leave us with a potential picture of what we as Door of Hope Northeast might look like as a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, spirit-led church in light of all that we've been learning over these last couple of months, okay? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I wrote this out. I don't know if it's any good or not, but I think it's biblical, so that should be enough. Um, I'm just gonna read this, and if you wanna close your eyes, close your eyes. If you wanna zone out at the logo on the screen or whatever, Um, or if you just want to stare at the person next to you really intensely, up to you. But listen to this. Potential picture of what we might look like as a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, spirit-led church. As a spirit-filled church, we would together fall more and more in love with our God. The Spirit's influence would not rest content to have us just love him, the third person of the Trinity only, but he would push our attention to our King and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
and to our Heavenly Father God. We wouldn't simply learn true things about our God, but we would love and value Him more and more. We would more and more trust the Bible that He inspired. We'd cherish the opportunity to read His words and hear His voice. In it, we'd develop a closeness to Him and a taste for the kinds of things He does and doesn't say in the kinds of ways He does and doesn't say them. As a spirit-filled church, we would together grow a, a childlike dependence on him, knowing that we can accomplish nothing of eternal value without him. So we'd be humbled. But at the very same time, we would grow a peaceful confidence that we are not without him, that he is with us, in us, working through us. So anything he desires is possible for us. As a spirit-filled church, we'd regularly ask him to fill us, knowing that he is where our power comes from, and we'd know that he did it again and again when our love for God and our love for our sisters and our brothers spilled out into mutual encouragement and heart and soul worship and deep gratitude and mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. We'd see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and gosh, the world needs more of those things, doesn't it? We'd see these things increasingly become the flavor of our lives together and individually. We would actually begin to look like our Lord in the real spaces of our lives we would surprise one another with how that came out, even in the hardest, darkest, lowest moments of life. As a spirit-filled church, we'd see people discovering their spiritual gifts in relationship with one another. We'd see people celebrating and delighting in the unique ways God has blessed us and others to be blessings, whatever those gifts are. We'd see in every member ministry where every believer who's part of this church knew that they had a role to play and were empowered to play it, whether it's formal or informal, public or private. We'd see contributions that the world thinks are unimportant or meaningless or stupid, dignified as equal examples of people becoming conduits for the work of God in the world we would grow in our desire to serve and to encourage and to equip one another. We'd see growing value for the common good in our midst. We would not neglect the prophetic gifts nor quench them. We'd expect God to reveal himself in encouraging ways through various people in our community. And we'd grow to, we would grow the maturity necessary to test and discern the genuine cases from the mistakes and the deceptions. We'd pray for healing and for miracles with boldness, trusting that our God lacks no power and, and leaving the results to him. As a spirit-filled church, we'd become swept up in the purposes of God over our own with a deepening, widening love for the lost, spilling out into boldness and witness and evangelism to the good news of Jesus Christ that we can't ignore or tamp down. We'd see new people compelled by Jesus and the Spirit finding salvation from their sins and belonging in this family. We'd see them helped into maturity and deep discipleship and resilient spiritual formation after the image of the likeness of Christ himself. 
As a spirit-filled church, we'd be a people who increasingly love our neighbors and hate our sin that wounds them and wounds us. We'd be quick to confess and repent of our sin that we might daily know the gracious forgiveness that he always extends and the practical goodness that he wants for us to experience. We'd be a place that welcomes the outcast, cares for the downtrodden, supplies for the needs of those who need. As a spirit-filled church, more and more we would develop the ears to hear the witness of the Spirit pouring the love of God into our hearts, speaking to our spirits that we are beloved children of God and heirs of all the glorious promises that these things can never be taken away. From this identity, we'd go out into the world willing to be presences of salt and light, forgiveness and justice, grace and truth, righteousness and beauty, and the love of God. Is this what you want? This is what I want. I trust that this is what we all want on our best days. So as we end this series, as we end this series, we begin, we begin this journey into becoming the spirit-filled church. And by God's grace, Door of Hope Northeast, I see so many of these things. I've been in a pretty, some of you know, I've been in kind of a dark season this summer in many ways. I've been discouraged. I've been, uh, I've been down. I've cried more than I've cried in a long time. And many of you, like embodying these things, have been the scaffolding that I've needed to like take one more step. To keep coming. To keep trusting Jesus. Because I've seen him at work in your lives. Thank you. I think if we have the eyes to see, we see the Spirit is at work in this place, friends. And we want even more. We want even more. So, I say it again. This is not the end of our time thinking about and leaning into the Holy Spirit. This is the beginning. May this be a new track that the Lord has for us, pushing us forward into deeper and deeper places. All these things that we just, we just heard, we just read, we just thought about would become more and more and more the reality. That's the agenda. Are you in? All right. Well, we're going to end this series one more time the way that we began. If, if, um, if you would, I invite you to stand. Stand with me. And we're just going to pray. We're going to pray for all of this together. Yeah, if you want to open your eyes, fine. If you want to close them, fine. But I, I invite you, if, if, if this is your desire, the, if, the, if these things, more of the Spirit is what you want. If it's not, that's okay. Or if you're like, I'm not even a Christian, man. What are you talking about? That's fine. Just stand there. No big deal. But if you want more of these things, I want you to open your hands and just, there's nothing magical about this. It's just a posture of reception. It's just tuning our bodies into what our, what our, what's on our hearts, what's on our minds, what's on our spirits. Posture of reception. 
Pray these things with me. Repeat after me. Holy Spirit of God. We want you to lead us. Lord, forgive us where we've quenched you. Forgive us where we've grieved you. Forgive us where we've resisted you. We thank you that you have not left us. We lay our lives down at your feet. We ask you to fill us today and tomorrow that we would become everything you have for us. For me as an individual, for my brothers and sisters here, for us all together as a church. We want all that you will give us, Lord. Keep us from pretending. Keep us from manufacturing. But keep us from stifling. We want you to have all of us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.